morning. Man, uh, we already had an intro to this message. Um, for the people who are going to be listening online, I guess uh, maybe we should fill them in a little bit. Uh, or maybe we should just keep them in the dark and say, hey, if you want to hear the good stuff, you've got to come in here. Um, the good Man, what, what an amazing uh, testimony we had this morning of a healing. Um, Joan, her son, adopted a child from Ghana with HIV. And when he brought him in to be uh, tested here in the United States, here in the Seattle area, um, he did not have HIV. And uh, his, his new adoptive dad, Joan's son, prayed for him on the way to the hospital. And um, the doctors ran test after test after test. And praise God. This is just one of those things where you say, man, there's, there's just no other way. Because in Africa, there's such an AIDS epi- epidemic. They know how to diagnose it correctly. Uh, it's, it's not like a mistake was made. Um, so praise the Lord. Uh, we, we have the testimony of, of a healing this morning. And uh, it's great that you would talk about that because we're actually going to be talking about evidence today and how different people respond to evidence different ways. Uh, in our previous lesson, we saw Mark um, tell us about Jesus' ministry expanding to the Gentiles. Uh, he went up to the region of Tyre uh, where he continued to teach his disciples about the futility of um, imposing traditions, the futility of rites, uh, and imposing these traditions which really have no basis on, uh, in Scripture, but just somebody decided it would be a good idea, a good way of, uh, of, of acting on God's behalf or whatever, and so they, they said everybody should be doing what God has convinced me that we should be doing. And Mark didn't actually mention a thing about Jesus having uh, interactions with Gentiles throughout the entire first half of this book. Yeah, we're, we're right around the halfway point right now. And as, we, as we've passed the halfway point, one of the most amazing things, in my opinion, that we've seen uh, is the lack of faith on behalf of the 12 disciples. These are 12 guys who are right there with Jesus. And halfway through the book, it's really clear. They, they don't quite get it just yet. It wasn't that they didn't have any reason to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It was the fact that they wanted Jesus to be their peer, their, um, you know, their co-equal, their homie, uh, you know, to, to mock the shirt that, that uh, some Hollywood celebrities have worn, Jesus is my homie. Maybe, even they, you know, maybe they were even a little bit comfortable with Jesus being their teacher, but to actually make him their Lord and Savior, to see him as so far above them, was something they just weren't willing to do. So with that in mind, part of what Jesus is trying to do right now is trying to get these 12 guys rooted firmly in their faith. He's given them evidence, and he's trying, to, he's trying to give them that extra little push to actually put their faith in him. Now, the disbelief of the disciples, uh, you know, it, it really wasn't all that different from what we see in the world today. Two people can be looking at the exact same evidence and arrive at different conclusions. Uh, take gravity, for example. Kurt was talking about the props that we have up here. I have a tape measure here. Take gravity. There is a huge range of gravitational forces, and gravity must be at the level that it's, on, that it's at on Earth right now in order for us to exist. If it was a little bit stronger, 
We wouldn't live. If it was a little bit weaker, we wouldn't live. And to demonstrate this huge range of gravitational forces we have, I'm going to have Craig take one end of this. Don't let go. Maybe I should put it on lock or something. Um, <laughs> and, and Glenda, take the other part. If I could have you stand up and come all the way over here. See, this goes way over here to show you how delicate, how balanced our earth has to be in order for us to live. Let's say that this tape measure was stretched across the entire galaxy, the entire universe, and there are enough gravitational forces, that, you know, ranges, to do that, inch by inch, representing a different degree of gravity. And somewhere along the line, in the middle of the universe, you'd find our place right here. And here's how delicate it is. If you were to go one inch either way, we wouldn't be here. One inch to either side across the whole universe would mean that we couldn't exist. And here's the thing. People, this, this evidence is out there. This evidence is out there for people like Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who, who just passed away. The evidence, the scientific evidence is out there to show, hey, we're, there's a very fine tuning here to the universe, but one person will look at that and they'll say, wow, we were obviously created. That is a great piece of evidence right there. And somebody else will look at it and say, boy, we sure are lucky that all these random chemicals came together in just the right balance for us to exist. So you've got the same evidence and two people who are looking at the same evidence arriving at totally different conclusions. Uh, add to this the fact that if the sun was only a slight percentage warmer, we'd fry. If it was a slight percentage less, we'd freeze. Or that if the electromagnetic force constant of the universe, don't worry about what that is, but if it was only slightly greater, if that was only slightly greater, all the chemical bonding in the universe would become disrupted and unstable and if the electromagnetic force constant was even slightly less, chemical bonding on Earth would be insufficient for life chemistry. In fact, there are books, big books, filled with facts like these, scientific facts like these, showing the fine-tuning of the universe. And when you put it all together, the chances of life actually coming into existence would be one followed by more zeros then you could fit on this entire wall right here. Thousands and thousands and thousands of zeros. One in a, a number bigger than we can even imagine. And yet, somebody, some people say, oh, well, you know, that one chance is there, but it doesn't take into account the fact that there was once nothing, and science knows that there was once nothing, and then there was something. Um, if you're on Facebook, you've probably seen the picture that circulates once every, I don't know, six months or so that says, uh, and we've got a slide for this, it says, atheism, the belief that there was nothing and nothing happened to nothing and then nothing magically exploded for no reason, creating everything, and then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> if that isn't like the most illogical statement you've ever heard, the most unreasonable thing you've ever heard, man, I, I don't know what to tell you. But that's truly what atheism amounts to. The evidence is there. The evidence is abundant, abundantly in, in favor of showing that God created the universe. But there are people out there who nevertheless do choose not to believe in spite of the evidence. Now, the disciples aren't. 
they're, they're not exactly in the same boat. They, they do believe in God. These guys are not so cold-hearted that they say oh, they're, they're, there's no God. They do believe in God. They just haven't allowed themselves to be convinced of the fact that he's walking right beside them as their teacher. And so they've gone up into the region of Tyre with Jesus, where Jesus is unquestionably trying to give his disciples a glimpse of their future ministry, taking it beyond the Jewish population, taking it into the Gentile population. And so he's entered Gentile territory. And it's here in Gentile territory that the disciples are going to receive an enormous chunk of Jesus' teaching uh, in private, uninterrupted by the religious authorities. So let's take a look at where Jesus brings the disciples next. Mark chapter 7, verse 31 is where we'll start. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Let's just go ahead and stop there. This is a really strange verse, uh, geographically speaking. You know, they'd been on the the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where Tyre is located. It's it's near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, about 30 miles north. Uh, northwest of Capernaum. Uh, their destination, however, where, where Mark tells us that, he's, that Jesus is going to take them, is southeast of Capernaum. So he's going to take them from here down to here uh, in the region of Decapolis. But the way that Jesus is going to do that is by heading through the city of Sidon. Well, the city of Sidon is located several miles north of Tyre, uh, so what Jesus is doing here is bringing them north in order that they can get to a place that's south. And it's going to take a long time. Uh, well, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but what we need to realize is that um, they didn't go back the same way that they came. Instead, uh, what most scholars agree on here is that they probably went through what is modern-day Syria. They went north, they headed east and came down through the mountains in Syria and eventually ended up down in Decapolis. Uh, a few years ago, when I was living in, uh, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, I flew to Charlotte. And uh, if it had been a direct flight, it would have taken an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Uh, but we had a layover in Chicago. Uh, now, if you know your geography of the United States, you know that that means that we started in the south We flew northwest a little bit, and then we ended up back in the south, the southeast. Uh, Yeah, um, that's obviously not the quickest way from point A to point B, but that's the way that the airline booked my flight. And with a business plan like that, it's no wonder that airlines are always on the verge of bankruptcy, right? Um, But yeah, Jesus has done the same thing with his disciples. He's taken them the long way. They've taken a little bit of a detour. They're going, they're going home, uh, they're going toward home, but they're going the long way. Uh, and most scholars agree that this probably took anywhere from six months to ten months. Uh, now remember, Mark is all about action. He moves from one thing to the next, one scene to the next, very quickly. And so there are several months of Jesus' ministry that he just skips over here. Uh, but this chunk of time was spent ministering in Gentile territory, teaching the disciples in a place where they wouldn't be disturbed by the religious leaders of Israel. Now, we shouldn't miss the fact that they've arrived back in the region where Jesus had cast the unclean spirits, named Legion, out of a man. And so word has continually spread here. People have had a taste of him. They've heard all about him, and they want to see more. They want to get a little bit more of him. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up 
with his disciples. So we continue reading, in verses, uh, starting in verse 32. They brought to him, to Jesus, one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched the tongue, touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking plainly. Now, this is a unique story. Mark is actually the only one of the four gospel authors who has included this story of this man who is deaf and mute. Now, who brings him to Jesus? They do. Who is they? Uh, That's the question, right? We don't know who they is. Um, Maybe it's the friends of uh, of this man. Maybe his friends brought him to Jesus. Uh, That seems to be a little bit unlikely, however, because deaf people were for the most part, social outcasts. I mean, it would be hard to, uh, to have friends when you're living in complete silence and without the ability to communicate. So it seems unlikely that it was his friends. Maybe it was his family. Maybe it was the masses of people who, who knew about this guy and thought, well, you know, let's, let's bring him to Jesus. We can't be 100% certain of who, who they would be, uh, but they bring him to Jesus. Uh, and what we can be certain of here is that there is an expectation that they've got. Jesus has shown up. They bring this man to him with the expectation that there will be some type of miracle. That's what they're hoping for. Now, now part of me thinks that there's at least a possibility that these people are are maybe close to acting in faith, but not quite there yet. Uh, Instead, I'm inclined to think that they're actually testing Jesus, that they're bringing this guy to Jesus thinking, you know, this, this would be a real test for him. Let's see if Jesus can do this. Now, what makes me think that? Well, for starters, the fact that Jesus doesn't heal him right there in front of him, in front of the masses. Instead, he takes this man away from the masses. He takes him to a place where they can be alone. And Jesus probably has the disciples, uh, were there, uh, you know, the disciples there with him. But the people who brought this man to Jesus aren't going to see a thing. They're not going to see what Jesus does. They had implored Jesus to lay his hand on this man, but did you notice what Jesus did? Not only did he take him away into private, but he didn't do it the way, um, the way they had commanded him, the way that they had expected him, the way that they had asked him to do it. See, he wasn't doing something for the multitudes of people. This wasn't about him doing what they wanted or him doing something for them. This is about Jesus doing something for this man. And that's all it was about. See, people who were deaf and mute were protected and provided for under Jewish law. But society had classified deaf and mute people with other groups of lesser thans, such as women, slaves, mentally handicapped, and minors. That was first century culture. Those were lesser thans. They weren't lesser thans in Jesus' eyes, but in the culture's eyes, those were lesser than people. And as such, this guy, this man, the deaf and mute man, would not have had an education. And as a man who wasn't educated, he wouldn't have known how to read. And without being able to read, without being able to hear, he would have been shut out 
from the light of scriptures as revealed in the Old Testament. He he wouldn't have known. He couldn't hear somebody talk about their testimony. He couldn't ask the tough questions that we sometimes ask about God or about the Bible, about salvation. And so thus this man, what this man represents is the most difficult person on earth to reach in that day and age. Notice also this comes on the heels of Jesus healing the daughter of the woman in Tyre, right? She had come to him and begged that her daughter be healed. And Jesus healed her without saying anything. All all he did was, was will it. He willed it, and that was sufficient. He didn't go to her. He didn't touch her. He didn't say anything. All he did was will it. And he says to the woman, go home. She's been healed. But now Jesus is going to get awfully close and personal with this man. I mean, putting his saliva in this man's mouth. That's awfully close and personal, right? Uh, You've got to have a lot of trust to let somebody do that. But that's how close and personal Jesus is going to get with this man. It would have been enough for Jesus to will it. But Jesus chooses to get close and personal. Now, it says that this man spoke with difficulty, which probably means that he spoke with grunts and groans, um, rather than speaking an actual language. Uh, the word actually it, it can be translated as mute. Uh, he spoke with difficulty, okay. But either way, Jesus could have just willed that this man would be healed, but instead Jesus is going to choose to touch him. And interestingly, the word that Mark uses for speaks with difficulty or mute, depending on your translation, is the same word that we find in the Greek translations of the Old Testament, uh, of Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, which uh, speaks of the blessings which would occur in the age of the Messiah, blessings that the Messiah would bring forth. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, we read, Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Well, we've seen Jesus cause the lame to, to leap like a deer, right? I mean, uh, if, if I was the guy on the pallet back in chapter 2, man, I, I would have been jumping for joy like crazy, right? So, so Jesus has done that. We, in fact, we've seen that a couple times, Jesus healing people who were on pallets. Uh, but now it's time for the mute to shout for joy. Now, in first century Palestine, in, in this area, a magician uh, would commonly babble just some unintelligible gobbledygook phrases that you know were, were meaningless during so-called healings, similar to uh, today. You know, if you go and see a magician, maybe they'll say abracadabra. Not really so much anymore because that's such a common term. Uh, but you know, abracadabra. What what does that mean? I don't know. It means I'm about to do a trick. Uh, I mean, it's just babble, basically. But that's exactly what ancient magicians would do as well. They they do it today to an extent. They used to do it back then too. But Jesus speaks plainly in an understandable language, in Aramaic, saying simply, be opened or be completely opened. That's kind of what the tense indicates there. Now I want to draw your attention to the actions of Jesus, the actions. See, Jesus is always trying to stir up our faith, strengthen our our faith, and he touches the man's ears and tongue as a means of indicating what he's healing. This is something that I had a t- I've always had a tough time with until actually I started studying for, for this, uh, this particular passage today. He touches them as, as an indication of what he's healing. He's speaking the man's language, so to speak. 
He's acting out uh, what he's going to do for this man. And then he looks up toward heaven. Why? So that the man can understand that heaven is the source of, about, of what's about to happen. Then Jesus sighs deeply. What does that represent? That's an action that represents relief. So Jesus is acting out these motions, telling this man exactly what's going on, where this, uh, this healing is going to come from. And then Jesus speaks to the man. Jesus didn't need to say these words, but he doesn't want to leave any doubt of the fact that he's the source of this blessing. This is a case of him exercising his authority. Jesus has looked into this guy's eyes. He's looked into his heart. He's seen the response of faith in the actions that Jesus had just acted out to communicate with him. And he healed the man based on his faith. I believe that the man probably had a response of faith. He understood what Jesus was acting out, what he was trying to say by acting this stuff out. Now, this is the first miracle that Jesus does here. There are actually two pretty incredible miracles. You see, when somebody's been deaf and they first get something that, that causes them to be able to hear, maybe, maybe you know, uh, a hearing aid these days, uh, something, you know, where without the hearing aid they, they couldn't hear anything, but, you know, at a moderate stage in life, they've been given a hearing aid, they've been able to, uh, to hear all of a sudden for the first time. And it would normally take a really long time for them to learn how to speak an intelligible language. But this man, Mark tells us, this man begins to speak intelligently immediately. He's speaking a real language immediately. There was no learning process. There was no relearning process if there was a time where he had gone deaf uh, but wasn't before. No, it was instant. He instantly starts speaking in an intelligible language. He went from speaking in grunts and groans to speaking just like you and me, just like anyone else. Now, after having spent months alone with the disciples, teaching them on the way down to Decapolis from Sidon through modern-day Syria, he's, he's using this moment to teach them that any blessing that we receive from heaven comes through faith. That's what this lesson is all about. The lesson here is that if there's a way of bringing someone to faith... Jesus has the means at his disposal. Is it evidence? Is it a kind word or a kind action? What is it? Whatever it is, Jesus has it at his disposal. If there's a way for a person to be convinced to soften their heart, if there are words or actions that will soften even the hardest of hearts, Jesus knows what it will take, and Jesus will do what it takes. He knows each one of us intimately. And he meets us right where we are. Right where we are. There, there's no cleaning up before you come to Jesus. You can't do it. No, he meets us where we are, giving us exactly what we need to either bring us to faith or to increase our faith when we need a boost. Let's continue. Verse 36. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, I don't know if, you, if you're catching this, but there is a ton of irony here in these two verses. 
Jesus has just healed a man who could not speak, who didn't know how to speak. But as soon as he can speak, Jesus tells the people not to speak about what's just happened. Jesus could open the ears of this deaf man, but he can't close, or he doesn't close, the mouths of the people. He could have. Jesus was mocked by the Pharisees, or he mocked the Pharisees how well, about how well uh, they would twist and abuse the law of God. But the people here are praising Jesus for how well he does all things. And they're being sincere. The response of the people is that they are utterly astonished. And if we were to translate this term literally, uh, it's, it's one word. It would indicate being astonished beyond measure. See, Jesus has a way of always surpassing expectations. Maybe these people thought that Jesus would be able to heal his deafness. I doubt that they expected this guy to start talking right away. I really doubt it. But Jesus can surpass expectations. We come to Jesus asking for a small sip of his grace, and he basically says, here's a barrel of it, and there's more where that came from. Jesus finds a small need, and he's able to provide more than abundantly. And it's no wonder then that the crowds here were astonished, utterly astonished. And maybe we can't exactly fault them for their disobedience here. Yeah, you know, Jesus told them, don't talk, and they, and they did. Uh, yeah, it was disobedient. They shouldn't have done it. But have you ever heard an amazing piece of news, a secret that was just unbelievably good? <laughs> And then somebody tells you, don't tell anyone about this. This is just a secret. Man, that's really hard to do. That's really hard. Like if if you find out that, uh, you know, one of your kids is going to get married and you're told not to tell your spouse because your kid wants to tell your spouse. Man, that that would be really, really hard to keep that uh, under wraps. So maybe we would have done the same thing. I I think I probably would have done the same thing. But notice, however, that Jesus um, has told the crowds not to speak. But he doesn't tell the man not to speak. He told them not to speak. But he's already allowed this guy to speak, and he doesn't say anything to him. That's very interesting. Maybe the reason, or maybe part of the reason, that Jesus told them not to speak was so that the word could spread through the mouth of the one who was healed. Maybe. It's more likely, I guess, that the reason that Jesus has told them not to speak about it is because The same reason that we've seen over and over and over in this narrative, in this gospel narrative. And that is that Jesus has no interest in being just a sideshow miracle worker and nothing else. He's he's not just this circus act. Come see Jesus. He's going to do some amazing things. He wants to be more than that. He does things to get your attention so that he can teach. Because Jesus is concerned not so much with the physical as he is with the spiritual. Yeah, he's done the the supernatural. That's not the end goal. No, what he wants to do is minister to the spiritual issues of the people. But he knows that what's going to happen if word spreads is that people will come seeking the physical and the observable, the tangible, the empirical, instead of the spiritual. But the spiritual is much more important than the physical. And so Jesus doesn't want word to spread because he wants people to come to him for the right reasons. For the right reasons. Now, 
just kind of a side note, I get it, I guess. If, if you ever go to a church where there's a heavy emphasis on the observable, healings, uh, speaking in tongues, things like that, it's almost inevitable. And a key word here is almost inevitable, um, that the doctrine of the church will be poor. There seems to be some type of relationship there. I, I don't have an explanation for why it is, but in churches where there's an overemphasis on the physical, the ministry to the spiritual will often be sorely lacking in substance. And it's not that there's anything wrong with wanting or asking Jesus to heal. In fact, we, we received a testimony today that he still does it today. He still does it. There's nothing wrong with wanting him to do that. But what we have to do is keep in mind that he wants to minister to a person's whole person, the body, the mind, and the spirit. It's a matter of finding a point of balance between the physical, observable, and the spiritual. And that's a hard point for a lot of people, a hard balancing point for a lot of people to find. Now, as we move on to chapter 8, just ignore uh, the chapter break uh, that we've got here. Forget that it's even there because the story is going to continue in the same location. He's got the same people, plus some, uh, around him. Uh, And we've kind of got a chapter break right in the middle of uh, the same scene. Um, You know, it it started where we started today, verse 31. That that would have been a great place for a chapter break uh, and going forward. But, um, you know, it doesn't make sense, but it is what it is, I guess. But just keep in mind, this is the same uh, context, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. In those days when there was, again, a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. So obviously, over the course of these three days, Jesus' popularity has grown exponentially. Word has gotten out. People have come from a long way to see Jesus. When he healed the deaf and the mute man, it was like throwing oil on the fire. All of a sudden, people are talking, word spreading, and people are coming to him, whether it's for the right or wrong reasons. People are coming to him. And out of his compassion, out of his compassion, Jesus notices that the people who have surrounded him for the past three days have nothing to eat. Apparently, Jesus and his disciples don't either. The people have nothing to eat. It's possible they haven't eaten in three days, or maybe they came with, you know, maybe a day, maybe two days worth of supplies of food. But whatever the case, they're out of food at this point. They're out of food, nothing to eat. And this should bring us back just a couple chapters to the point where Jesus fed the 5,000 men and their their families, you know, somewhere between 15 and 25,000 people. Do you remember what the disciples learned from that miracle? Mark told us specifically what they learned. Nada. Zilch. Nothing. They had learned nothing. Why? Because of the hardness of their hearts. They had been cold-hearted, hard-hearted. They had coveted Jesus' power. They had coveted Jesus' authority. And thus they gained no insight, according to Mark. They had gained no insight from Jesus' miraculous provision for the people. Jesus didn't have to feed those 5,000 men and their families, but Jesus is always driven by compassion. Compassion. The reason that Jesus healed was out of 
Compassion. The reason that Jesus cast unclean spirits out of people was out of compassion. The reason that He fed the 5,000 men and their families was out of compassion. Most importantly, the reason that Jesus came and died, taking the punishment of our sins upon Himself, the weight of our iniquities upon Himself, was out of compassion. Jesus is always compassionate. The reason He healed this boy with HIV was out of compassion. And here again, Mark tells us that Jesus specifically tells His disciples that He feels compassion for the people. They've been with Him for three days. They have nothing to eat. Maybe that's because a couple thousand of their pigs drowned in the sea. Maybe. I mean, that was just a couple chapters ago. Um, you know, I'd imagine that would have some kind of effect on the food supply. I mean, this was a Gentile region, so uh, they probably did eat pig. Uh, you know, Jews wouldn't, but they probably did. Um, but that incident was at least probably uh, a year in the past uh, at this point. So maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the food shortage. We can't be sure. But now put yourself in the disciples' shoes for just a minute. What would you be thinking you know, I would like to think uh, that I'd be thinking, Lord Jesus, you know, you, you know what to do. You, you've, you've been in this situation before. You just say the word, and, and you can provide for all these people. I would like to think that that's exactly what I would say. Or maybe not. Because I haven't spent three years walking along Jesus' side as a hard-hearted individual. I don't know. But look at how they respond. Verse 4. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Wait, what? Seriously? You're kidding. That would be my response if I'm Jesus. You guys are kidding, right? No, Jesus is nicer with them than I would be, I think. He expresses a desire to, to provide for these people. And the disciples can't figure out for the life of themselves how he could even hope to to feed them. Seriously? After what they saw before? But remember, they didn't learn anything before. Now before we go any further and before we judge the disciples too harshly, uh, we need to take a closer look at exactly what's going on here. Uh, First of all, some people have said, Uh, And I actually read this. Some people think that Mark messed up and repeated the same story twice. Um, No, actually, uh, Matthew and Mark both tell this story, and the narrative is filled with much different details than the feeding of the 5,000. This isn't the same same thing happening. It's a totally different context, right? It's a different location. They they were in Jewish territory before. They're in Gentile territory now. Uh, When Jesus fed the 5,000 men and their families, they, they had followed that up by trying to force Jesus to be their king. And these people aren't going to do anything like that. Uh, They're not even going to try to hold Jesus up for any reason. But the most significant difference here is that those were Jews and these are Gentiles. These are two totally different situations. Now, the disciples had learned nothing from the feeding of the 5,000, and apparently they still don't completely get it. Yeah, that, that's, that's really hard for us to, to wrap our minds around and believe. But friends, <clears throat> we need to understand what this is saying about the roots of disbelief. The roots of disbelief are strong, <clears throat> they're deep, uh, they're, they're incredibly difficult to uproot. Uh, 
It takes a lot of time and a lot of patience. And that's something that we don't exactly have in our culture. Uh, I'm completely aware of that. I mean, look at what our best-selling weed killer is. Anybody know what our best-selling weed killer is in the United States? Roundup. Roundup, right. Anybody know what the number one selling point of Roundup is? It kills everything within 24 hours. And they have the commercials where they show, uh, you know, the 24-hour period, and after 24 hours, the one week's dead, and the weed that was sprayed by, you know, not Roundup, but whatever the, the competition is, is still alive and, and, and living. Uh, so the, that's the top selling point, that it would be quick. You don't need patience. Uh, there is nothing, however, nothing that is guaranteed to work that quickly on the roots of disbelief, unfortunately. The reality is that some people are willing to look at the evidence and put two and two together. They're willing to look at the evidence and draw a reasonable and and correct conclusion, even though they might not see the whole picture. It's enough for them to respond in faith. It's, It's enough for them to believe. And some others, unfortunately, won't. But really, this type of thing is something that we do all the time. Uh, Maybe not every day, but we do. It's something that we consistently do in our culture. Let's say that you get called in for jury duty, and it's a trial that involves a car accident. But there's no film footage uh, that you have to compare it against. There's no film footage available. But what you do have is several eyewitnesses. Uh, You have skid marks, pictures of skid marks. Um, that were measured on the street and pictures of two very banged up vehicles. And so all the eyewitnesses testify that this white car ran a red light, causing it to crash into a blue car in the middle of the intersection. Now, you look at the evidence, that's what the eyewitnesses said, and you look at the evidence, the skid marks indicate that the white car was probably going about 20 miles per hour over the speed limit, and what you can see is, based on these pictures, is that the front bumper of the white car is in shambles with blue paint chips, while the side of the blue card is, or car is, is kind of concaved with white paint chips in it. Now, you don't see the accident. You haven't seen the film, but you've heard eyewitness testimony, and you've seen some evidence. Do you have enough evidence to arrive at a reasonable conclusion? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's evidence. It all points to this one thing happening. It's pretty much indisputable. Now, the same is true about trusting in Jesus. The same is true about trusting in Jesus. You have eyewitnesses who all attest to the fact that Jesus performed more miracle than we have record of. And one of those miracles, of course, is the resurrection. You have eyewitness accounts uh, that were written and recorded within less than one generation of it occurring. You have the eyewitnesses and the early followers of Jesus who spread the the message of the gospel out over Europe, Asia, and Africa, all with the same message and all being killed for their message, all being persecuted for their message. And you know what happens when people are lying and you spread them out so there's no accountability with each other and you threaten to kill them? They break. Somebody breaks, but none of them broke. None of them recanted their message. And when a Harvard law professor who literally, literally wrote the book, there really is a book on this, uh, the book on credibility of witnesses on the witness stand, when he examined all this evidence, he became a Christian. He looked at the evidence and he became a Christian because he was certain that they were telling the truth based on 
the evidence. There are a few different details given in each account, but they're all consistent enough that we can be sure that they're telling the truth. That was his conclusion. Oh, and one more thing. Our verse right here actually uh, provides great evidence for the truthfulness of our text. I mean, think about it. If you're one of the disciples and you're making up a story about some guy named Jesus, would you make yourself look good or would you make yourself look like an idiot? Let's be honest. You'd make yourself look good. But these guys are looking like a bunch of fools right here. So the fact is that by confessing their own ignorance, uh, by portraying themselves as morons who are hard-hearted, in a text like this, the disciples have actually given us a really good reason to trust them, to consider their testimony as being reliable. Because people who lie about something will paint themselves, portray themselves as heroes, but the disciples are being revealed here as completely ignorant why would they reveal themselves to be ignorant? Why would they portray themselves as a bunch of idiots? Because they're telling the truth. And this is a good reason to believe it. And it's unbelievable that they would ask a question like this. Where are we going to get enough food to feed all these people, Jesus? Wow. In a desolate place like this, there's no way there's enough food. But the fact is that when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't believe you've got to be prepared to be really, really patient with them. Jesus spent around three years with these guys. Three years constantly with them. And until He rose from the grave, they didn't get it. He died. And he, they still didn't get it. They went back to their old ways. They didn't get it after three years. It was when Jesus rose and appeared to them. They said, whoa, wait a minute. We know you were dead. We've seen you do some incredible things over these years and we couldn't believe, but wow, you, you are back. And that's what it took to get them to get it. Now you think that Jesus could have chosen somebody else, somebody who, who would have started off by getting it. They, they would have gotten it right from the start. I mean, look at the deaf and mute guy. He got it, right? He, he got it right away. Look at the man who was possessed by legion. He got it right away too. You might say, okay, well, those are Gentiles and Jesus is calling Jews to be his disciples. Okay, well, look at Jairus. Jairus got it right away. But instead of choosing these people who responded in faith, Jesus has chosen these 12 guys that he would take three difficult, long years spending time with them, trying to give them the evidence. And that's because Jesus saw them not for who they were right then and there, but He saw them for what they would become. And what I've learned in my own experiences is that we've got to try to do the same thing. That's hard for us. Not to see people as they are now, but what if this brilliant scientist like Richard Dawkins, what if we had somebody like him who would believe. Can you imagine how powerful that would be? The foremost atheist of the 20th century was Anthony Flew. A lot of people gave up on him. But there's one guy, one scholar, who didn't. He befriended him, they became friends, and eventually, in the late 90s, I believe it was, Anthony Flew said, I've been wrong about everything I've lived for. I believe that there is a God. Did he convert? I, I don't know. I don't, God knows, but, but I don't know. But the fact is that when you're dealing with disbelief, 
it can take a lot of patience. It can take a long time. We've got to learn to look at the unbelieving world through the same eyes, seeing them not for who they are right now, but for who they would become if they would only put their salvation, their trust for salvation in Jesus. So the disciples have no idea how they're going to be able to feed so many people. Let's continue. Verse 5. And he was asking them, Jesus was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. And also, they also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. Now, from a health nuts perspective, Jesus did it just right here, serving the carbs before the protein. Way to go, Jesus. Uh, that, that's, that's descriptive, not prescriptive. But um, yeah, you, know, you, you don't want all those carbs just sitting in your stomach while your stomach's busy digesting. Never mind. Um, but the response of the disciples might have been, uh, we've got seven loaves. That, that might be what they say on the surface. But underneath the surface, what they're saying there is, Jesus, we don't have enough to feed all these people. Try again next time. Nice, nice try. So they started with seven loaves of bread. Jesus says, bring me the seven loaves of bread. And Jesus gives thanks for it. The loaves are multiplied, and it's enough to feed everyone. And as the, as the loaves of bread are going around to everyone, maybe a couple people come forward and say, I've got a couple fish too. I've got some fish too. So Jesus does the same thing. He gives thanks for it. It's multiplied, and it's divided. That's a lot of math. Among the people. The details of this account are actually completely different. As we see, the details here are completely different from the feeding of the 5,000. But let me draw your attention to something else this time. Let me draw your attention to the fact that Jesus is providing the blessings that the people are receiving. But Jesus is delivering these blessings through the hands of the people who are following him through the hands of the disciples. These guys might not have completely caught on just yet, but we can't look down our nose at them because they were being obedient. They were obediently serving Jesus. How? By serving people. And we can and we should be doing the exact same thing. It starts with loving God. When you love God, you listen to what He says about loving other people. And even though it's not always easy, you know that that's what you are supposed to be doing. And so you strive to love other people. That's what's followed by the love for God, loving people, and then the next step is to serve. You serve God by serving people. Exactly what the disciples are doing here, even though they don't quite get it just yet. Do we get it? I mean, do we? I mean, we look at the disciples and we're inclined to say, what a bunch of buffoons. What a bunch of idiots. But here they are. They're serving people out of obedience to Jesus. Love God. Love people. Serve God by serving people. And I want that to be what we, as a local church body, are all about. Our mission You guys know our mission. Our mission is to know Christ and make Him known. To know Jesus and make Him known. How are we going to do that? By loving God, loving people, serving God by serving people. Say it with me. Loving God, 
loving people, serving God by serving people. It's that simple. Let's wrap this up. Um, Verses 8 and 9. And they, the, the people, and they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 men were there, and he sent them away. Once again, this isn't just 4,000. This is 4,000 men. They've probably got family with them too. We don't know exactly how many people are there, but it's a lot. There are a lot of people there. And once again, Jesus has provided more than enough. There are leftovers. He didn't just give them a small sampling. He didn't just give them a taste or a small helping. No, he provided more than they required. You see, with Jesus, you know the law of supply and demand? With Jesus, the supply is always, always, always able to meet the demand. It's greater than the demand. Here they are in a desolate place. Have you ever been in a desolate place? Wondering, God, how are you, you going to help me out here? Man, here they are being provided for in a desolate place by Jesus. Friends, whatever your need is today, the message here is that Jesus can provide for whatever your need is more than abundantly. And he provides for us not based on how good we are, not based on our checklist. We've already gone over that. Nobody brought their checklist today, right? No, he provides for us based on his compassion, his love, his amazing love for us. That's where his compassion flows out from. You know, these people have probably come in hopes of witnessing a miracle, but Mark hasn't told us about any miracles that Jesus performed right there in front of them until now. It's probably safe to assume that he was teaching them for three days, and these are the people who stuck around to listen. And we should be asking ourselves, what did Jesus want his followers, his his disciples specifically, to learn from this miracle? See, Jesus never did anything for no reason. Everything was a teaching moment with Jesus. And whatever it is that he wanted his disciples to learn here, we can be pretty sure, we can be 100% sure that's what he wants us to learn here as well. When people come to Jesus, he doesn't send them away hungry. He doesn't send them away empty-handed because he knows our needs and nobody meets our needs better than he does. We start with what we have, seven loaves or whatever it might be, and we don't wait for God to do absolutely everything because he wants us to participate in his ministry, in the things that he's doing in the lives of people around us. You know, we all want to see God do things, and we we pray that God would do things, change things in our lives, and that's a good thing for us to want. But we have to understand that there are some things that we want that only He can do. We, We bring the bread, so to speak, or whatever it is that we have. We bring the bread, and only He can multiply it. Only He can do something with it. We bring the water. Only he can turn it into wine. We start with what we have. And we trust him. That he's going to do something amazing with it. Because it's in his hands. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you truly do all things well. 
And Lord, I know that you are a God who sees us and sees our needs, and you are consistently compassionate with us. And Lord, we thank you that you're patient with us too. Some of us, myself included, we're we're still getting it. And so we thank you for your patience with us. We pray, Lord, that you would continually be teaching us how we can serve you by serving people. God, we want to be a church that is known for loving you, for serving you, for being obedient to you. And so through your Holy Spirit, Lord, I just pray that you would teach us to follow you and to be like you, compassionate for people who are in need, compassionate for people who have wants, maybe not necessarily even 100% needs, maybe close to needs, but that you would be a source of blessing that would be distributed through us. That's our prayer, Lord, that the community would see you and your blessings through our ministries here at this church. Thank you for this passage, Lord. Thank you for all the things that it teaches us about your love for us and for people. Teach us to be like that. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.